Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to the Clarinet Podcast, Episode 7. Before we get started today, and we've got a long episode here talking with Catherine Ladano, so I'm going to try and keep my chatter to a minimum. Um, I just want to read off a quick list of 10 really exciting upcoming artists that we, we have in the works here. I'm absolutely thrilled to say that we are able to talk to the Swedish clarinet superstar Martin Frost, Canada's own synthetic reed manufacturer Legere, Florian Popa of Clary Sax Products, Bakun artist and freelance musician Peter Siglaris, a representative from the Royal Conservatory of Music, master repairman Peter Spriggs, um, a representative from Edimotic Research. Now, this is a company that, that manufactures headphones and, and hearing protection devices, and I look forward to talking to them about uh, hearing protection for musicians and their incredible headphone products. Um, I've also received a package from the uh, Vientos Bamboo of Argentina, and I have to say they've got some gorgeous things in there, and I'm really reluctant to give away. But um, there's going to be some interesting conversation about, the, about those products and uh, to give away on the show. Of course, Lori Friedman will also be back for a second round specifically to answer some listener questions. Speaking of listener feedback, if you have any questions for any of these artists, please forward them along to feedback at clarineat.com. That's feedback at clarineat.com. We've had some great questions rolling in already. And um, you can also leave them on Facebook. But if you, for example, comment on a post that's been shared by somebody else, it's, it's really difficult to track those down. So the, the best way, again, is feedback at clarineat.com. In today's episode, I chat with Catherine Ladano, who is a bass clarinet instructor at the University of Waterloo. She also teaches improvisation at Sir Wilfrid Laurier University, and we discuss her passion for the bass clarinet, um, her work to try and make it a recognized solo instrument, and we get her thoughts on improvisation and much, much more. Without further ado, here's the interview with Catherine Ladano. Hi, Catherine, and welcome to the Clarinet.com podcast. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So it turns out we're actually interviewing you and your two or three dogs you've got there. <laughs> That's right. I have three dogs. And what kind are they? They are miniature schnauzers. They're very yappy. <laughs> well, they might get to have their say a little bit too. We'll have to see. So, so you've managed a pretty successful career making bass clarinet a solo instrument, which is no easy task, especially given the fact that a lot of organizations don't really consider it to be a focus of study in itself. Um, a lot of students still face hurdles in this regard, and um, actually one of our listener questions a while ago was asking, what would someone who wants to pursue bass clarinet do about this? Um, would you mind sharing your thoughts on this issue? Yeah, that, that's a great question, and, and I have a lot of thoughts on this issue, so I'll, I'll try to keep it, you know, as brief as I can, but um, yeah, th th this is an issue that, that I think in this day and age is still really problematic, because there is so much music out there for bass clarinet. Um, we're, we, we live in a time now where modern composers just, you know, have really taken to the instrument, really love the instrument. And as a result, you, you, you see like in the past uh, 20 years, there's just, just been this huge amount of repertoire written for the instrument. And one of the arguments always used to be for, for schools that wouldn't accept bass clarinet majors, that the argument they always stuck with was, well, there's no music for them to learn. There's, there's no repertoire. And, and it's just... It's a ridiculous argument today. Um, you know, another argument is that, uh, and a lot of people still feel this way, I'm not one of them, is that 
if you are a bass clarinetist, you also have to be a clarinetist. You have to play both instruments equally well. You have to be a doubler in order to get any kind of work. And while I know a lot of people that, that are doublers, in fact, most, the vast majority of bass clarinetists I know do double on both instruments. I don't feel that it's a, it's a necessity anymore. I think it kind of goes back largely to a time when sort of the focus of, of study, a, a music study in a university program was always, you know, the end goal was to play in an orchestra. And absolutely, if you're going to play in a, in a symphony orchestra, you have to play both instruments. You're not going to get a job uh, only playing bass clarinet because there's not enough symphonic repertoire for it. Like how many orchestras only play really new music? I mean, hardly any of them, if any. So in that case, yes, you have to be a doubler, but... I really feel that to be, if you want to be a bass clarinetist, you're you're basically signing up to be a contemporary musician because the instrument is new. It's it's very new compared to most instruments that you'd see in an orchestra. Uh, you know, the first solo piece wasn't written until the 1930s. Like that's very late compared to most instruments, and the bulk of this repertoire is is really only in the past sort of 20 to 30 years. So it's very new. But I do think that as long as you're okay being a specialist in contemporary music and really new sounds, absolutely you can focus on the bass clarinet. There are more schools all the time that are sort of, you know, coming along to this, or coming around to this type of thinking and allowing bass clarinet study. But it is a huge hurdle for people, specifically in Canada. There's not a lot of places you can go in this country to specialize on bass clarinet. There are a few of them. Uh, I believe you can at McGill because I I I think Lori Friedman has bass clarinet students, or at least she did when I studied with her. Uh, I know at the University of Toronto it's a little wishy-washy. Sometimes you can. I know of one person that went through uh, the Bachelor of Music program on solely bass clarinet, and they allowed her to do that. Uh, as you know, University of Calgary is one. Yeah, uh, that... I, let me just jump in there for a second. Yep. I heard through the grapevine, were you one of the first people to graduate as a bass clarinet major from the U of C? I was the first. The first. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. So let me just interject there. You, you raised a couple of good points. I have a few questions regarding that. Yeah. Um, do you think that the repertoire, um, well, first of all, why do you think composers are so drawn to the bass clarinet? Um, I, I sometimes notice that it seems to be even more of a focus than the, the standard clarinet. Yeah, I agree with that in contemporary music, absolutely. Uh, and I think part of the reason, actually, actually I would say the main reason, I think, is just the, the, the variety of sound that you can get on the bass clarinet. So yes, they're, they're similar instruments, they're from the same family, but the bass clarinet, because it's, it's such a larger instrument, it's so much larger than the clarinet, you can get, the range is significantly greater. So you can go a lot lower, but you can also go higher because it sounds an octave lower. So you can get away with higher sounds that sound like nothing but sort of screech on the clarinet. Well, they don't Lori's sound... taken that one step further, bringing her contrabass around for this tour. <laughs> that's right, that's right. I have not heard her play contrabass, but... Uh, it's wild. Man, I would love to, yeah. It's wild. Yeah, so, you know, and the, and the other thing is that 
you with all the extended techniques I mean that's something that composers are really interested in but uh, and and you can do all the same extended techniques on a clarinet but they just sound you know I hate to use the word better I realize I'm biased <laughs> I'm super biased to a little space bit. clarinet <laughs> just just a touch but um, you know for example uh, multiphonics because you you can go lower it has a richness of sound that you don't get in the clarinet so uh, all listeners may not know what that means um, Multiphonics is basically when you're producing more than one note at once. Is that yes, correct? That is correct. Yes. Yeah. And how many notes do you find at a time you can do doing that? I, I, is the limit two or three or? Uh, the minimum is two. Uh, I've gotten I, I think probably anywhere from like two to five. Mm -hmm. And there's some fun things you can do because you can play around with what you're doing with your mouth and sort of inside your mouth to kind of bring. Uh, tones in and out so it's it's kind of a fun thing you can do and, and again you know because the clarinet the range is so much smaller you don't you don't hear it quite in the same way it's still a cool effect but it just sounds that the, the sound is so much richer and deeper when you have you know the the low end of the instrument um, likewise another I won't go through all of them, but uh, <laughs> another technique that I think sounds way better on bass clarinet is slap tonguing, and that's when you mm. um, you use sort of a, a percussive effect when you when you tongue the notes. And again, because the instrument is larger and has a deeper range, uh, that sound just kind of resonates in a way that it doesn't on the clarinet. It just sounds kind of like just a thin little pop on the clarinet, yeah. and it sounds it just sounds so much better on a. I'm using that word again, better <laughs> on the bass clarinet. <laughs> But I, I think that's just a like that's a, a couple little examples of why I think composers are kind of drawn to the to the bass instrument. So do you think then going back to your sort of comment about repertoire in the universities, do you think then it's maybe somewhat justified from the sense that it is lacking a lot of the earlier repertoire and they're trying to teach sort of a well rounded um, education throughout the musical eras? Yeah, I, I, I mean, you, you do raise a good point there. And um, to, to use myself as, as an example, when I was doing my master's at the University of Calgary, uh, I remember I got criticized because you have, I had to do two recitals. And my one recital, my teacher, uh, Stan Climey, and I had, had prepared a program that was strictly contemporary music because we were focusing on music written for bass clarinet. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we were criticized for that because... You know, we we were told like, oh well, you need a you need a baroque piece and you need a, a classical piece, you need a romantic piece. So well, there there isn't anything. But um, but what what I did and and what you know lots of people do in that situation is is you play transcriptions. There are some really good uh, cello transcriptions for bass clarinet, and that's what I ended up playing. Um, like the Bach cello suites are actually really wonderful on bass clarinet, and there's some good arrangements of them. So it's not that you can't do it, you, you can, but you have to be okay with writing transcriptions. Yeah, but and even yourself, I guess that really opens the door um, to write your own transcriptions if there's something you Absolutely. can imagine. Yeah. But the, but the other thing I'll just quickly say about that, too, is you can use the same argument for saxophone. Like, all universities allow students to study saxophone, and there's no classical repertoire for that either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some, some universities even have a, a classical saxophone performance degree, um, yeah. whereas a lot of saxophone players make a lot of their money playing jazz. Yeah. You know? Yeah, So absolutely. I've always found that a little 
little bit interesting, but um, yeah, I think that the the university world is changing, and it's a lot of people are are pursuing education less to become orchestral players and more to become musicians. And um, I don't mean orchestral players are not musicians, but I mean <laughs> <laughs> what I do mean is that like there's other things you can do with music, and yes. maybe focusing on contemporary bass clarinet repertoire is is um, a justifiable argument nowadays. It's it's funny. I'm I'm actually um, I have a student who's an older student and adult, and she plays clarinet. And last mm-hmm. year, she tried to bass clarinet for the first time and was totally. She just fell in love with it, and yeah. uh, at the same time, she wanted to start taking the RCM exams. And so I was getting her already, and we were going to register. And I just assumed that you could start on bass clarinet just as easily as clarinet, and they actually don't allow it. I know. I know. It's crazy. So that's one of the questions I'm actually going to talk to them about when I when I speak with them in a couple of weeks. Yeah, it's, it, you know, and it, it is a good question. I mean, um, you know, there, and there's so many young people playing bass clarinet now compared to, you know, even 10, 15 years ago. Like, it's clearly something that people have a lot of interest in. And, and from those young people, I mean, I, I hear these stories all the time. They're so frustrated that, yeah, they, their options are so limited. Like, there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to do this stuff. But it's it's a very backward system. Like, I, I feel that... that that largely the music education system in in general is very much still you know back in in this this old kind of classical way of thinking about a lot of different things and I mean it, it takes time for things to change I, I'm hopeful that things will change in in Europe it's a very different uh, a very different scene you know mm-hmm. you can you can study bass clarinet there no problem. Well, you know, and back to the RCM. I mean, I know what they're trying to do. It's a it's a classical performance training program. Yeah. But you know, a lot of kids start out on bass clarinet at school, and and are we really going to tell them that in order to receive the benefits from the RCM system, you know, the scale testing and the performing and the piano uh, uh, interaction with the accompaniment, um, how, how can we convince them to buy, go buy a clarinet and take separate lessons just just for that? I mean, yeah. maybe when they get to grade six or eight, then they should be asked to branch out if they want to continue doing the orchestral excerpts and things yep. like that, and the you know actual repertoire that's for clarinet. Yeah. But um, there must be some sort of compromise. But anyway, so you've done a lot of really interesting work um, promoting your instrument, and and some of that is obviously your two studio albums, Open and Listen. Um, what was, what was it you were trying to achieve with these recordings? Well, with, with open, I, I released that one in, in 2009. So it's a few years ago now. And, and at that time, I, I remember thinking that I, I'd received a grant to release my, my first album. And it was one of those things where I wasn't sure if I would have the chance to do it again, you know, like I, I kind of wanted to take that opportunity and throw as much into that album that I that I do and that I'm interested in as possible. So that's why it's um, you know, if I if I were to do another solo album right now, I think it would be very different. Because I think it would be a little more focused because uh, Open, while I still really like that album, is um, is trying to kind of show a little bit of everything that I do. So there's several improvised pieces. Uh, there's a few of my own compositions. 
at the time I was I was dabbling a little bit into uh, electroacoustic composition and I just uh, written a piece for that so that's on there uh, and then you know there there have been a number of composers that have written works for me so I kind of wanted to show that off too so it was sort of like how can I throw all those things that I'm interested in and that I do into one album and open is kind of the, the result of it. It's sort of the culmination of everything that, uh, that I was interested in, in at that time. And I mean, there's still the same interests. I think I'm just a little more focused now. Um, as for listen, that album is, uh, that's a, a, an album with my band uh, called Stealth, and it's a bass clarinet percussion duo. The percussionist is, uh, is Richard Burroughs, who plays in the, um, in the ensemble, the Percussion Quartet Torque. Mm-hmm. And um, he and I had known each other for a number of years and sort of played together in a number of different contexts. And, and we decided that we would form a band together. And, and actually, our first recording and and one of our first performances is actually on open it's the very first track of open called uh, further reflection and he was someone i just invited in because i thought hey you know i'm really interested in playing with this musician i think we can make some really you know interesting sounds together so um and and we did we came up with some great material and then the one I liked the best ended up on open, but we kept working together and we, we started to, to learn a lot of new repertoire, bass clarinet percussion repertoire. And and there is a lot of that actually. But, um, one of the things we noticed in our concerts was we'd always throw in some, uh, improvised music as well. And we noticed that almost every time we performed, uh, audience feedback would, they'd always tell us like, Oh, there's that we really enjoyed that. But you know, your best pieces are your improvised pieces. That's, that's really magical stuff. So we decided that, um, when we released our first album, that, um, that's all it was going to be. It was improvised music. So that album, uh, basically we took five days and we treated it sort of like a full-time job. So we worked from about, uh, 10 to 5 every day, took a lunch break, and we'd do nothing but play. So we'd just come in, we'd, you know, do our microphone checks with our, with our sound guy, get that all set up, and then we'd just play for several hours, take a lunch break, play for several several hours, go home, and uh, and do it all again over the course of five days. So we, we re- basically reached a point where we, we have something, we have hours and hours and hours of material, and it took forever for us to go through and kind of decide what we thought was the best, and, and not necessarily the best, but what would flow really nicely on an album. And listen is sort of the, the culmination of all of that. It's sort of the 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 hour of material from those five days of recording that that we kind of liked best and thought would work the best together and the album plays as if it's one long continuous track without any breaks so that is actually spliced together so we took um we took different improvisations that we did and sort of decided where the start points and end points would be and then we stitched it all together so that it it plays as if it's one huge long track but it is broken up into listening points so if you want to listen to the album you don't have to listen to that huge one hour track you can you can break it up and we've sort of break uh, broken it up into um listening points that sort of make sense so you can listen to you know little snippets of it that that sound like they're complete pieces yeah i think that's a really creative way actually to handle improvisation in the studio and and that's kind of my next question actually um on open and and stealth as well i guess a lot of it sounds like you're using the studio almost as a 
an instrument to improvise with after the fact, um, especially on open. I, I guess listen was more recorded live off the floor, or yeah, actually, um, that open was as well. There's some, oh. um, yeah, there, there's um, it, that's interesting to me that that you heard it that way because um, there's only one track where. Uh, where there was really anything significant done after the fact, and that's that really nerdy one at the end called uh, Evil Kirk, and there's um, some treatment done to the voice. But other than that, um, no, there there actually wasn't really. I can't remember doing anything. Yeah. What? So some of the bass clarinet effects then that it seemed like it was sort of trailing itself or almost like a really long echo or. You weren't layering any of that? It was all just no. sort of, were using an effect pedal or how did it? No, I wasn't using pedals either. Um, the, now, the only one I can think of where it may have it may have sounded like that was my piece, uh, my electroacoustic piece I wrote called Open Strain, where there's, there's a live part and there's an electroacoustic part. And the electroacoustic part has some bass clarinet samples in it. Mm. So that might be a situation where you heard something that sounded really unnatural. Um, but that was just, that was just the electroacoustic part layered on top of the live part. But that's really the only example that everything else. Yeah. Was, was done in the studio without effects added. So the vocal stuff was kind of interesting, actually. Um, that was also done like live. Yes. Now that one did have some treatment because, um, there's kind of some weird stuff that happens with the voice occasionally. Like there's some weird echoes that happen. Um, and there's one kind of like really robotic effect that's, that's added to the voice that was done after the effect or, um, after the fact, but, um, but no, the, the voice and actually that was done in a, in a chapel. There's, um, this really wonderful sounding chapel, at Wilfrid Laurier University called the Keffer Chapel, and it, it has the most amazing acoustics you've ever heard. And um, several of the pieces on my album were recorded there, including um, the, the one with voice. So um, I'm wondering, too, if maybe because that room is so ambient and resonant that it maybe it's sounding like it was treated but, uh, but wasn't. You know, it might be that the blend was so good, too, between some of the instruments or something. It just seemed to me that it was really, like, well, this is a compliment, I guess, but well thought out, and and it definitely came across that it had been sort of preconceived in a way, and and then assembled to be what you wanted. But that's interesting that it's all um, the improvisations, especially to be to be live like that. Mm-hmm. So the track I was talking about was further reflection. Okay. It just seems like well, when I was listening, I thought the bass clarinet was like reflecting somehow, like it was. Sort of like a long echoey thing. It was it was sort of neat, but the not the sure. only thing I can think of, and and actually that one was not recorded in that uh, chapel I was just talking about. So mm-hmm. that one was actually recorded in kind of a fairly dry space. So the one thing I'm thinking of is I'm wondering if if something the percussion was doing maybe you thought was me because yeah. there are there are a lot of moments where he does something in the percussion. And I know in concert people mention all the time that they can't tell who's playing what in a lot of different moments. So, uh, specifically I know in that track he was doing a lot of, um, uh, bowing on a vibraphone and that can really sound sometimes like a, like a bass clarinet effect sometimes. So you know what, that's definitely what it was because I remember thinking like, wow, what plugin is she running this through? It sounds amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't so me. he must have a really good ear to follow like that, and mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. 
Wow, that's great. So yeah, I mean that's that's why I love working with him. That's why I wanted to do an album with him. It's amazing. So it sounds then I wasn't sure listening to the CDs, but it sounds like improvising to you. Do you treat it similarly when you're on stage as in the studio, or do you treat it with a different mindset? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, it's um yeah that's a that's a that's a good question too. Um, you de- it definitely is treated differently in my mind, but I wouldn't necessarily say that it's a it's a conscious thing where I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm in a studio now, so I'm going to play this way, or I'm in front of an audience now, and I'm going to play that this you know a different way. It's not necessarily for me. It's not a deliberate thought like that, but but absolutely, it is a totally different experience. So one of the interesting things about uh, playing improvised music is it's very much about. Um, communication communication is the most important thing and and this is even when you're improvising as a soloist because you're still communicating with your audience and your audience always feels like they're very much part of the performance and they're very much part of the music that is unfolding in the moment so it's really it's very hard to explain but when you're in that moment and you're performing you can you can really sense the audience and even though you don't necessarily hear any sounds from them you can you can sense when they're kind of on board with what you're doing and when they're not and that really affects a performance in a really profound way it it it's it can be really really interesting uh when you're in a studio you lose that so in general i have to say even though you know, I may sound like a hypocrite because I recorded a lot of improvised music. Improvised music works so much better in a live capacity because you have the audience that you're feeding off of. When you're improvising in a studio, you know, for example, with Listen, when I was improvising with Rich, there's still very much a a communication going on and, and some really interesting moments that happen, but it feels, it always feels like something's missing. It, it feels like it's not... It's just not the same experience without the audience there. And I think in general, most of the recordings I've heard from improvised musicians, it's, um, I don't know, it's always better live. It's, it's just not as good when you listen to, you know, just an audio recording. Because the other thing that, that is really wonderful about uh, improvised music is watching the performers. Um, if you're an audience member, you know, you can really witness that intense communication that's happening between musicians and between musicians and the audience and if you're if you only have the audio you kind of lose a lot of a lot of that you know that being said there's plenty of really great albums out there by uh improvising musicians but i do think you know to to simplify things that um that having the audience there is really 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 important and in most cases i think makes a performance better you know this sort of takes me to my next question which is i saw you in calgary when you were playing and um that was an interesting concert actually for those who weren't there we had kind of a eclectic group there was a guy who was playing his guitar with his toothbrush or something and then (laughs) and then there's some other performer with some string or something and and then Catherine played this really incredible bass clarinet set, and then they all got together at the end and and sort of had a jam. Um, but you seem totally absorbed while while playing. So what's going on internally? Like, would you walk us through what's happening in your mind during a piece? 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's um. Yeah. Improvising as a soloist is is a very different experience. At least it is for me than um, improvising with an ensemble. It's it's um. It's a lot more intimidating, and I, and I would say it's it's more difficult because when you're improvising in an ensemble, you always have something to feed off of. You have something else to listen to and to work with. And when you're improvising as a, as a soloist, and specifically on a monophonic instrument like the bass clarinet, where I can, you know, unless I'm doing multiphonics, I can really only play one note at a time. You know, it can be hard to to improvise when those are the only tools you have to work with. So it's a it's a different process of um, of listening, like you're still very much intent on listening and, and being, so for me, I'm, I'm sort of hyper aware of what's going on. And I feel like there are basically two different types of improvising musicians and there are improvising musicians that work primarily based on their feelings and there are improvising musicians that work primarily with, you know, with their and it's going to sound weird, but I'm going to say like with their brains. And and this is not to say that, you know, the feeling ones don't use their brain and, and vice versa. But some improvising musicians are really good at, they have a very theoretical mind. And they're able to sort of play a phrase and then in their minds kind of, you know, dissect it and be hyper aware of, you know, what intervals they played or, you know, what mode they're playing in, or, you know, they're, they're able to take that phrase and then, you know, permutate it and, and play it backwards and, and play around with it and do all these different things to the point that at the end of the improvisation, they can tell you exactly what they did. And they'll say, well, you know, I started out playing in this mode and then, you know, I brought in this, this three note phrase and then I, I transpose that to this, whatever. I'm not one of those types of improvising musicians. I'm the, the feeling kind. So, um, when I'm improvising, I'm very much, yeah, I, I, the, the simplest way I can explain it is to say that I'm very much guided by my, my internal feelings. So I'm not necessarily thinking about it in the same way. I very rarely think thoughts like, oh, you know, that was an interesting phrase. Now I'm going to play it backwards. I don't, I don't play that way. It's, it's more about, you know, you, you feel like the music should go this way or you feel that, that this needs to happen. And um, so when I improvise, I always, I, as a soloist, I pretty much always have my eyes closed because it allows me to sort of, um, you know, center my mind and really focus on those internal thoughts and get it all to come out. And sometimes it can be, it's incredibly therapeutic and cathartic. And there've been lots of times when, you know, something, maybe something bad has happened. And, uh, I think about that before I start a solo and I get all those feelings out and those feelings just kind of come out in the music. And I can't really explain very well how that happens or exactly, you know, what that process is other than it's, it's an expression of feelings. But, um, I know that a lot of times the audience can sense that because I've had that experience before where, you know, an, an audience member will tell you that, you, you know, they, they very much perceive that something, you know, very powerful was being expressed, whether it's, you know, sort of like a, a sad memory or, you know, a really important uh a really important memory or some kind of experience that you've had recently, like they do pick up on that. And I do think that, um, you know, when the audience is able to perceive that kind of expression of emotions, it, it can be, you know, very profound for them as well as for the performer. 
So I hope this doesn't sound like an ignorant question, but <laughs> if you're not thinking about the tonality or the mode or the chords and then the intervals and things like that, what do you focus as far as which notes and sounds to play? Yeah, that, that is a really good question, and it's something I kind of didn't really explain. So the best way I can describe it is it's not really that my brain is shut off and I'm not aware of those things. It's not really that I'm so focused on feeling that, you know, I don't know what I'm doing or I don't know what, you know, what notes I'm playing or if they work. Um, it's the best way I could describe it is that it's almost like the, the, um, subconscious mind takes over. That's kind of the best way I can describe it. So, um, you know, a good analogy for me, I think would be those moments where you're driving a car and you kind of zone out and you end up home and you're just like, wow, how did I even get there? I don't even remember driving. It's a similar experience where, you know, I think my subconscious mind has enough music knowledge stuffed in there that it knows what works and what doesn't work and it knows what I want to do and what I don't want to do. And it's almost like when you're when you're focused so heavily on feelings, your subconscious mind sort of takes a part in that and is able to, you know, fill in the gaps and sort of do all that stuff. It's just not done in such a way that for me personally, I could necessarily at the end of it come back and explain to you, you know, exactly what happened in every moment or say to you, oh, well, you know, at the two minute point, I switched modalities and, and I started, you know, thinking about it this way. I can do that to a certain extent, but I think the people that are on the other extreme that are, you know, really thinking improvisers do it to a much greater degree than I do. But um, that's not to say that you're ever not thinking about an improvisation. That's not to say that the, the brain is ever checked out. It's it's not. It's just that I think some musicians rely more on feeling and sort of let their brains kind of go on autopilot and more and other musicians rely less on feeling and more about, you know, kind of deconstructing it in the moment. And I'm much more on the feeling side. So what about in reverse? Like, have you ever gone back to it and said, hmm, I wonder what this sort of looked like on paper? Or have people tried to pick it apart like that? Uh, I've certainly done that in my own work. Um, uh, while doing, uh, I'm, I'm doing a, a PhD right now at, at York University. And one of the things I'm, I'm focusing on is, is improvised music. I'm researching that right now. And when I was in my first year still doing coursework, I did a directed study with my advisor, uh, Casey Sokol who's a, a piano improviser. And one of the assignments he gave me in that course was um, he knew that I was very much, you know, maybe too much of a thinking improviser. And, and he wanted me to be much more aware of, of sort of what I was doing. And so one of the assignments he gave me was to record uh, four full CDs of improvised music. Uh, and there were different parameters for each CD. And then at the end, I had to listen back to everything and write about everything. So I had to, you know, be really aware of what I was doing after the fact. So that, I think, is kind of an example of what you're talking about, where after the fact, I, I went back and, um, you know, kind of really listened to what I was doing. And it was in that process that I actually noticed a lot of um, sort of habits and traps that I fell into as a performer. There were certain things that I would hear all the time coming up in different improvised pieces. And, and some of them I kind of felt were crutches 
Mm-hmm. And others, I felt like, well, that's, you know, that's just an element of my style. And there's also a fine line between, you know, this is an element of my style and, oh, this is that thing that I always do when I've run out of ideas or something. <laughs> so, yeah, so that that process kind of gave me a different awareness and it made me a far better um, improviser in the end because I've certainly moved while I'm still, I don't think I'll ever change the fact that I'm largely a feeling improviser. Um, it certainly moved me more towards the thinking spectrum and I'm certainly much more aware of what I'm doing and, and sort of what my habits are and what my strengths and my weaknesses are much more so than I was, you know, a few years ago. So you're so passionate about improvisation. You've actually worked to bring um, the International Society for Improvised Music to your your uh, your city, Waterloo, Canada, this May. Is there anything you'd like to share about that event? Yeah, yeah. It, this, this one's a really exciting one because, yeah, it's the first time that it's ever been in Canada. This will be the... Um, I believe it's the ninth annual conference, so it's it's still a relatively new organization. I uh, participated in the seventh annual conference in New York City two years ago as a uh, as a performer, and I gave a uh, a talk as well. And um, it was it was just such an amazing experience for me. It was my my first time at that conference, and my first time at any conference like that where there's all these, you know, sort of like-minded people. And um, basically it's filled with um, amazing performances all day long, all night long, uh, academic paper proposals, workshops, like everything you can think of. And and people from all over the world, uh, and, you know, people playing, you know, Western instruments and people playing Eastern instruments and, you know, every instrument you can think of. And uh, it was just such an amazing experience that after being to it, I, I thought it was kind of a shame that that um, conference had only ever been in the United States and had never moved outside of it. So I had gotten to know the organizers a little bit and have been in talks with them uh, basically since then, so so almost for almost two years, about uh, bringing that conference to Canada. And um, yeah, they, they wanted to do it, and it's going ahead, and it's happening this May. And uh, Wilfrid Laurier University in, in Waterloo is going to be the host institution. So it'll be three days there, and then they're moving to Toronto for, for the final day of the conference, and that's going to be at the Music Gallery in downtown Toronto. So how close is Waterloo to Toronto? Is that a bit of a trek? Uh, it's about an hour drive. but oh, that's not too a, bad. Yeah, it, it, assuming traffic's okay. Anyone that lives in southern Ontario will tell you that um, you can never rely on that if you're traveling to or from Toronto because um, traffic can be an absolute nightmare. <laughs> I'm sure it can. <laughs> you're also the director of the Numis Concert Series. Would you like to share some information about that group? Sure. Yeah, Numis is um, it's one of the older new music presenter and producers in Canada. So uh, we just turned 30 last year. And uh, Numis is is sort of all about um, presenting and producing contemporary music. We we have a strong focus on on local artists and composers, but um, we definitely have a, a have a national and to a certain extent an international reach as well. And um, yeah, Numis, I basically took over as a, or, or or was um, voted in as the artistic director about a year and a half ago. And uh, it's been an incredible experience. It's it's really uh, an absolutely wonderful job to, 
have the opportunity to, you know, to curate concerts and, and, you know, bring in the, the artists and musicians that you want to hear and you want to work with. Uh, last year we brought in, um, Calgary's own ensemble resonance and, mm. uh, that was really great. And, uh, I can't really say what is coming next year because we haven't officially unveiled it, but there's um, some really exciting stuff happening. And my take on, on since I took over at, uh, uh, with Numis, I would be the um, sixth artistic director since it started. And um, my focus is very much on um, kind of changing attitudes about the traditional concert experience. So one of the things I'm not a huge fan of is is that traditional experience you know sitting in a in a very quiet theater with nice soft seats and you know everyone applauds politely at the intermission and and oh you know make sure you don't applaud between movements because that's a bad thing and it's funny uh, how that became traditional because back in the days we were actually thinking about i mean wasn't the concert experience quite different i remember hearing about um some of franz Liszt's recitals for example as just being an absolute pop concert by today's standard yeah yeah so yeah, how, i wonder how it went this way to such an extreme kind of like we're just sitting in an art gallery staring at music mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, and i don't know the answer to that but um but yeah i i just i'm not a big fan of the of the stuffy concert experience and you know another thing that that is of huge interest to me is um you know interdisciplinary practices and I love fusing art forms together. So the the concerts, I would say, you know, while I do present them, the ones that that are of you know the least amount of interest to me are the ones where it's just here's a group of performers and they're going to sit on stage for the concert and then they'll be done. Like I like um, concerts where you bring in other element elements. Maybe you you bring in a really unconventional instrument. Maybe there's something happening visually on a screen behind the musicians. Uh, maybe you've br- brought in uh, you know, some electroacoustic music. Maybe you're doing some work with pedals. Maybe you're working with a dancer. Maybe you're working with a visual artist. You know, those types of things are, are um, you know, of more interest to me. Interdisciplinary concerts and you know, multimedia and, and that type of thing. And I do feel like even doing those little things does challenge the the traditional concert experience to a certain extent. But another thing I've done is I I started a second series so. We sort of have two series that run concurrently and the, you know, sort of the traditional Numis programming is, is in something called the main series. And then uh, about a year ago, I started something called the mix series, which is um, something I, I feel is very important because I'm trying to gear it to a younger audience. And I think that's a really important thing to do. I feel like we need to expose young audiences to contemporary music if we hope to have any kind of audience you know, 20, 30 years from now. So I'm trying to do that and I'm trying to make the mixed music series to be a much more relaxed environment. So I make sure that all those concerts are licensed. I invite people to stick around after the concert, you know, have a drink, chat with the musicians, chat with each other. Um, you know, they tend to be in more unconventional spaces. They're not ever in stuffy theaters. Sometimes I do them uh, in, you know, one space I use is, a, is an old button factory. Uh, I've used uh, small galleries. Uh, later this year, I'm using a local brewery as a venue. And um, it's all an effort to kind of make contemporary music a little more accessible and a little more interesting to younger audiences, because I think that's really, really important. And I'm not sure that, uh, you know, new music 
uh, presenters and performers necessarily focus on that as much as maybe they should because I see the audiences getting older and older and uh, you know I just think we've got to reach the younger generations we've got to make this accessible to them and it's not that they don't like the music because a lot of times when I get younger audiences out to these concerts they really like them and they're really surprised at you know what they find and what they experience in these new music concerts but you know they, they're just not interested in that stuffy concert environment and those those concerts tend to have a higher ticket price too that you know even with student pricing it can be enough to just make them not want to go well and one thing i was going to say and i i don't necessarily agree with this opinion or not but what would you say to someone who says that um the things like the lights and theatrics and other art and all that kind of stuff kind of detracts from the music and is almost a distraction more than adds to it because i i know there's a lot of uh uh, typical concert goers who do feel that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting point, and you know I am very aware that there are a lot of people out there that feel that way, um, and I think that you have to be very careful about what you do, and you know while I just said that all these things are are of great interest to me. I do believe that it has to be done, you know, in the right way. Mm-hmm. And if those extra elements are not serving or enhancing the music, then it shouldn't be there. Yeah. Um, you know, the, definitely in moderation. And, you know, you have to be smart about how you're incorporating it. It, it has to make sense. Um, some of the some of the performances I find really interesting uh, that I've participated in and, and that I've, I've witnessed myself are... Um, piece or sorry, concerts where you have this fusing of music and visual art. So I did a concert a number of years ago where we had a um, it was an improvising ensemble and we had a, a painter on stage who was sort of painting um, a piece in the moment. And that I think is an example of a time when it works really well because, the musicians were very much responding to what the painter was doing, you know, right down to the brush strokes and the colors that she was using. And she was also very much influenced by what she was hearing. Like you could tell that the sounds she was hearing were making their way into the painting. And I think that's an example of a time where it works really well because each one is influencing the other. Uh, However, if you're doing that where you know, I've seen it done with composed music, and I'm not sure that it it's necessarily as effective. I think it can be, but if the if the painter is doing something that's not at all related to the music that's being played, and the musicians are obviously not reacting to the painter because they're playing the music on their stand and they're not looking at the painter, you know, maybe it's not as effective. I don't know. It depends on the circumstance. But I think as a curator, you, you do have to be very much aware of, of um, always, you know, always questioning yourself. Like, why am I doing this? Does this make sense? Or am I just doing this to kind of just add more stuff on the stage and give people something more to look at? Well, it's funny. I actually recall seeing a performance with pretty much exactly what you're talking about. I'm wondering if it was the same thing. Um, if it was a touring performance, but they actually had gigantic uh, canvases that they set out on the stage and then big paintbrushes about mm. the size of a broomstick. Wow. So it was crazy. Maybe it's different, but it was kind of cool. And I, I heard actually that it was the, uh, the one event that year that really set the uh, venue staff on edge because we had, of course, on this beautiful <laughs> concert hall stage, these yeah. big buckets of black ink and... <laughs> 
<laughs> just pretty scary. But yeah, I, I agree that it can add a lot to set the mood correctly in a way. And I, you know, I'm trying not to impress my own opinion too much, but I, I definitely agree with what you're saying because if you think about a restaurant, you go there, you want to have dinner. I mean, the mood completely changes if the lights are off and the music's yep. too loud, you know? Yep. So when you're setting the, the mood for a concert, it, it's it's totally acceptable and in fact in many ways artistic to include those kind of planning elements in your design for the show mm -hmm. I um actually again this isn't about me but when I had my senior recital one of the pieces I played um maybe junior recital doesn't matter uh, are you familiar with the abyss of the birds the messian movement from yes. the quartet for the end of time yeah, yeah so I played just the solo movement of that with all the lights off except for a blue spotlight oh wow and people came up afterwards and they were like wow that was so cool I got really I was able just to close my eyes and really kind of get into a state that I wasn't expecting. And I think yep. that was so interesting. And, and I love when, when I go to a concert and they've taken the time to think about those things. So, yep. so I think it's great work that you're doing there for sure. Thank you. One quick thing. Um, <laughs> it's, we've got kind of an interesting show going on today. We're almost improvising ourselves here. We've got the dogs in the background. And <laughs> I'm not sure if you can hear, but I think that my wife just started teaching piano lessons upstairs. Can you hear that? I can't, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I guess we got our schedules a bit off today, so sorry for everyone listening. Um I'd like to say it was planned, but we these ele these elements are not <laughs> intended, but maybe they do. Maybe they're adding to it, right? I hope so. I, you know, the it, it, the dogs don't normally bark this much. It's like they know that they're, I don't want them to be They're on display. So. Yep. <laughs> they they know it's their chance. So All right. So, um this Numus Ensemble, um, you're involved there. You're, of course, a fairly involved improviser and performer and recording artist, all these things. Um, you're also the bass clarinet instructor at the University of Waterloo and um, teach improvisation at uh, Wilfrid Laurier University. What's the most important piece of advice that you offer your students? Well, for me, hmm, that's a really good question. And I'm not sure that I could... That I could uh, you know, sort of articulate that as, as one little piece of advice. But, but the one, uh, one thing I try to instill in my students, and, and that is a huge focus of all the teaching that I do, is um, to encourage creativity. That's, uh, you know, it's such a big thing to me. And I mean, it's an obvious one when I'm, when I'm uh, teaching improvisation. But, you know, I see a lot of students come you know, come to me from, you know, often performance programs, sometimes, you know, they're very often composers too, but um, the ones in particular that come from, uh, you know, performance studies, they have to do so much of that sort of, uh, you know, classical minded training and, you know, learning a piece of music and playing it in a master class and, and, you know, don't ever make any mistakes because any mistake you make is going to be, you know, pointed out and critiqued and oh, you better practice that, you know, a million times to fix that. And not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that because, you know, that's where my core training was too. And that's where you learn uh, and you develop as a musician and you learn all those concrete skills. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but what I try to do when I get the students is to try to get them to sort of think beyond that box and to think more creatively about what they're doing. And um, some students, uh, specifically those that one, uh, specifically those that come out of 
you know, sort of classical performance training can have a really hard time with it because when you tell them, you know, no, we're, we don't have a piece of music we're going to play from, you know, the, the music that we play today, you're going to create it and, and you're going to create it with these other people in the class or maybe you're going to create it with me. You know, that can be so scary to them. And, you know, while I think it's important to learn all the things that students do in their core training, I do think it's incredibly important for them to also learn to be creative. And it's something that, you know, generally speaking, they don't learn, uh, at least not in the classical system. I, I do feel that, again, this is this is slowly changing. And I think it's really wonderful that that I teach at a school that um, that gives students the opportunity that they can take an ensemble and improvise music. They can even major in it. So at Wilfrid Laurier, you can you can major in composition or you can major in composition and improvisation. So hmm. students that do that program, they get to do a, a recital too, just like the performers do. But it's a focus on improvised music and, and creative thinking. It's not just oh, I'm going to go on a stage and and improvise for an hour it's 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 never that they have to incorporate their own compositions as well and they have to curate their own concerts so all those things you know we just talked about in the last question about you know really thinking about how you would do this and and how you would present a concert to your audience you know those are all things that they have to think about and uh you know when i was doing my recital i i don't really remember that being a focus and creativity uh was certainly not something that was really ever part of my my core training. Um, I remember, you know, I had a teacher, one of my er earliest teachers, um, was very intimidated by improvisation. And, and, and another thing we should mention is a lot of that contemporary music I talk about has improvised elements in it. So mm -hmm. if you never learn how to, how to improvise, or you don't have any comfort doing it, you know, it's, it's going to cause some problems for you. It's going to limit what you can do. And, uh, you know, I had a teacher that, um, you know, brought me, worked on some of those pieces with me. And uh, I remember she told me to, to write out, like decide ahead of time what that improvised part was going to be and to write it all out. And I remember thinking that at the time, that was a little weird, but, and I remember thinking that I didn't think I actually needed to do that, but I did it. And um, so anyways, I'm kind of all over the place here, but, but to get back to sort of that main thing I want to focus on is, is for me, it's creativity. And no matter what I'm teaching a student, whether it's a bass clarinet lesson or I'm teaching improvisation or I am, you know, uh, mentoring someone on how to curate concerts or I'm teaching a music history class or I'm teaching a musical skills class, creativity has a place in every single type of learning. And even outside of music education, it, it's, it's a crucial part of learning everywhere. And being creative and being able to think on the spot and being able to adapt, that's going to make you a way better musician and it's going to make you a better person too I believe since I started improvising it's made me way better at reading um, composed pieces because I, I interpret them differently I think about them differently and you know if I do make a mistake it doesn't freak me out the way it used to because you know I have the ability to improvise I have the ability to sort of you know uh, to fix it on the spot and to and to keep going without it, you know, derailing everything and and without it being the end of the world. So I think creativity, more than anything, is the most important thing that uh, that I try to instill in my students. And for those students listening, I, I even if you haven't checked out the other episodes, I just want to point out that 
this is uh, episode seven, I believe now. And so far, I think six or seven out of seven have said basically the same thing. Is that you've oh, got to well. inject. Well, the, it, it's interesting to me, actually, because so many of the guests have talked about injecting your personality and mm-hmm. your yourself into the music that you're playing. Otherwise, yep. what's the point? Exactly. You know, yep. so I think it's such a great thing to take away from from talking with, with people like yourself from this sort of thing. Speaking of uh, students, though, you were, of course, once a student yourself. Um, you studied with Stan Climey, whom I, of course, know from Calgary here, and uh, Laurie Friedman, who we actually had on the podcast two weeks ago. So if you didn't check out that episode, head back there and listen to what she has to say, too. We had a great conversation with her. Um, but what would you say you learned is, during your time as a student? Is there a particular story you'd like to share or...? Um, well, I, I guess I could share uh, just something brief about each of them. I mean, working working with Stan was, was amazing. And Stan really opened up, really opened up the world of the bass clarinet for me. So, you know, while I was already uh, specializing in bass clarinet, and I already knew, you know, a chunk of the repertoire, you know, when I met Stan, it was just, it, it was incredible, you know, what he knew about the the different repertoire and uh, you know, all the, all the pieces that, you know, were really, really great that I probably wanted to dig my teeth. And, and, you know, some of my absolute favorite pieces for the instrument were ones that Stan brought to me or that, you know, Stan was aware of and found for me. So he was so enthusiastic, obviously still is, about uh, the bass clarinet that that for me, it, it just, you know, while that obviously that love for the instrument was always there uh, for Stan or when I met Stan, it just like just compounded because it was just like, oh, OK, well, you know, this is what you think, you know, about bass clarinet. And this is, you know, these are all the pieces that you think are great for clar- or bass clarinet. But look at all this stuff. You know, there's this, 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 this. Stan this. knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that and that was just it was amazing working with him and he just has such enthusiasm, you know, he's, he's like the nicest person in the world. And every time I go back to Calgary, I make sure that I at least have some time to grab a coffee with Stan or, um, you know, he's just such a, such a wonderful person was so great to work with. Um, with Lori, you know, the one, the one thing she said to me that I still remember and I, I use in my lessons all the time, uh, you know, when I'm teaching specifically improvised music, because that was a big focus of my work with her. Um, I wanted to work with Lori because at that time I was interested in improvised music, but I didn't really do it. And I didn't feel that I really had much skill in it. It was kind of this world that I, I wanted to be a part of, but I didn't know how to get in. And, you know, Lori is the master. So I figured there was no one better that I could possibly work with if I wanted to, you know, open myself up to that world. So I, uh, I received a Canada Council grant to work with her and uh, was just incredible experience but um to the point the thing she said to me that uh, that i still remember is, is uh that you know when you when you improvise it's all about intent and if you basically reach a point where you're sort of thinking too much about what you're playing and, and you know you play something because you think oh you know 
no one's played for a while. I better do this because, oh, this is going to sound really cool. People are going to really like that. That's not really an intention. That's not really playing with intent. Uh, it's not the same thing. And if you're playing because you need to, you feel like you need to fill the space, that's also not intent. That's not playing with intention. So if you have nothing to say, then don't say anything. Just be silent because that's just as valid. Um, it, it's just it's just as valid a decision to make when you're improvising as it is to you know play a hundred notes. So for her, that that sort of um, talk she gave me about intent and her thoughts about intention while improvising have very much stayed with me, and uh, I try to you know pass that on to my students as well. I think that's such a valuable piece of advice, and I, I just want to add to that that silence in itself can be the intent, can it not? Absolutely, it can. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, me recently, I started improvising uh, a little while ago, and I faced a lot of these same challenges. And one of them was sort of an insecurity about being silent as looking like you don't know what you're doing or you <laughs> somehow aren't able to do anything, but it really can add more than anything else. Absolutely. To listen and, and think about what you want to say and and say it meaningfully instead. So it's it's interesting that way. And of course, if you don't know what you're doing, that's all the more reason to listen and, and listen to what others are doing so you can think of something to say. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know? So be mindful and, and pay attention and and go from there. So, well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, Catherine. It's been really interesting talking to you. And um, I think that a lot of the listeners are really going to enjoy the, the topic of improvisation and and the bass clarinet specifically. Um, but is there anything else that you feel we didn't touch on that you'd like to share? Uh, I don't think so. I feel like I've I've talked a lot, so I probably should stop. <laughs> <laughs> and even the dog got to have the say there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'll be posting the link um, to your website on clarinet.com on the show notes page. Is there anywhere else online that people can get in touch and hear what you do, purchase your recordings, etc.? Do you have a SoundCloud page? I do have a SoundCloud page. It's um, soundcloud.com slash Catherine Ladano. And uh, most of the other links like uh, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff um, is accessible from my website too. Okay. Well, maybe I'll go ahead and post all those on the show notes there. Um, I just realized we forgot to talk about today's giveaway. Um, and so you're going to provide one lucky – actually, maybe we'll give it to two two people. There's two CDs, right? That's right. Yeah, so two winners. Um, each will receive one copy of uh, one of Catherine's CDs, Open and Listen. And um, th those are signed copies, correct? They are signed, yep. She's and signed uh, them too. And Listen is also signed by, uh, by Richard. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think that's a really, really great prize. And um, that will include free shipping anywhere in the world. So don't feel like just because you live far away, you're not eligible. As long as you like the uh, clarinet.com social media websites, you'll be good to go. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, Catherine. And I hope Thank to you. speak with you again soon. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Clarinet. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can follow and interact on social media. You can tell your friends, family, students, and colleagues about the show. And of course, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you happen to listen to it. And why not consider purchasing your new and neat clarinet products, and even sheet music, from the Clarinet online store at clarinet.com store. 
If you're involved with a company interested in advertising on the podcast, or you'd like to submit a product for review and potentially to air on the show, please contact promotions at clarineat.com. That's promotions at clarineat.com. If you're a listener and have feedback, remember you can get in touch at feedback at clarineat.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.